G'day, everyone. Quick message before we start. What we're trying to do with this podcast is to help people better understand their mind and how it works and give people practical strategies they can use to maintain and improve their mental health. Would you consider helping us to continue to do that with a financial contribution, large or small? If so, thank you. Just follow the link in the show notes. All donations, $2 or more, are tax deductible. Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works, mental illness and mental health, with Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. What can we learn about how our mind works from great writers? We're trying to find out by looking at the psychology of some of Shakespeare's great characters. What can we discover from them? about our own minds? Are there things we can take away from Shakespeare and use to help us better navigate our own challenges and dilemmas? We're joined again by actor, director, founder of the Bell Shakespeare Company, John Bell, man who spent most of his life grappling with Shakespeare's greatest characters. G'day, John. Good morning. Good morning. Today, we're looking at mm. uh, a character many think is Shakespeare's greatest, Hamlet, whom, a man who spends the entirety of a very long play thinking a lot, trying to work out what to do, but not really doing that much. Why are so many people fascinated by Hamlet? Why does he stand to many head and shoulders above the others? Well, I think Hamlet represents every generation. Uh, He's been called the first modern man in that he's uh, the first character in literature who actually thinks outside the box and asks why. Uh, Until then, characters are as people were, sort of um, confined by what they were told by the church, by the by the, the monarchy, etc. Uh, but come the Reformation, people start to ask why. And once you start to ask why, you pull one thread, the whole thing starts falling apart. Now, Hamlet goes to the University of Wittenberg, which is the home of Martin Luther and the beginning of the Reformation. So he comes back to Denmark and he finds, you know, uh, everything is going amiss. Uh, his mother has... Um, uh, married his uncle. Uh, his father's died just a very short time before, and within a month she's married the uncle, who Hamlet despises. Um, and he uh, is then confronted by his father's ghost that tells him that his uncle actually murdered him. So uh, there he's got, he's got uh, all this trauma and what to believe in, who to trust. He's surrounded by people who are spying on him, uh, Ophelia, his girlfriend, uh, Polonius, her father, his old friends from university, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are sent for to spy on him. So he doesn't know who to trust, what to believe. And he goes into, I would say, this uh, deep depression about, um, you know, wh- where is the centre? What can I, what, who, who and what can I trust? And I think every generation can identify with that because to all of us, uh, we have to ask those same questions about the previous generation. What have they left us and what have they told us and what can we believe and, you know, how do we find our own truth? Ian, John said Hamlet had gone into a, a deep depression and was trying to work out what is the centre. What, what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think John's just articulated what's so important. is the first character where overtly he disappears into his own head yeah. and then he brings his own head out and shares what's going on in his own head and getting stuck inside it, being entirely unsure what to do. Your favourite thing, James, he's lost in the why and how and what can I do? The internal world. Yes. Of, of, it isn't just thinking. It's the emotionality that's tied up in that. 
There are all sorts of things that would be a consequence. He's confronted all sorts of things about the previous generation, whether you see it just as generational or structures. Do I just fit in or do I have to do different? But if I start to do different, what then? Does the whole world fall apart? There's no sense to it. Yeah. All these things that everyone else is doing, there's no sense to it. Don't they stop and think about it? Why don't they? Why am I the only one that's fussed? And I am I exceptional in being in my own head? So to suddenly have a character that goes out and says that, you know, I think is one of those landmark moments. I mean, this particular play is filled with interesting characters, but yeah. this externalization of the internal world to be yeah. so elaborated, this was really new. And I said, as John say, it resonates with every generation. Every teenager has stopped and thought, what the hell? Don't these people think about what's going on? Doesn't anyone ever stop to consider the madness of all of this, the brutality of this, <laughs> the, the, the moral lack of centre of all of this? They all just carry on. Am I the only one? So, so there's this question then, is doing that kind of mad that people think he's insane, that he's, mind, he's losing his mind, or alternatively is the most rational and sensible thing you can possibly do to question things and try and make sense of them? Well, as Albert Camus said, the only serious philosophical question is suicide. To decide whether or not life is worth living is, that is the deepest and, you know, only really important philosophical question. Ham Hamlet says the same thing, to be or not to be, that is the question. But uh, this this uh, trauma that he goes through with the loss of his father, his mother's remarriage, uh, meeting this ghost, uh, you know, all of this throws him into the kind of depression, that I'd say, that uh, makes him unable to act. He simply cannot act. It's like not being able to get out of bed in the morning. He just cannot get out. Why the hell should I? What is there? He says, uh, I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises. Indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame of the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why, it appears no other thing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action how like an angel, in apprehension how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. That's the kind of what I mean by the depression, that yeah. there's nothing and nothing, no one to believe in, no reason to carry on. It's, everything's pointless. And there is a vicious cycle here. The more you're lost in it, we've discussed learned helplessness it before. It goes round and round. And then all colour is gone, all beauty is gone. When, when you stop acting, there's no pleasure in it. And I think John has just beautifully picked out a bit that people often don't highlight, just how miserable that is. The world has lost its pleasure. The world has lost its meaning. So I think in that sense, yes, that is a very accurate description of being depressed, mm. but also the behavior that goes with it. I can't act. And the more I don't act, <laughs> the more lost I am, the bit deeper the hole I dig. So, the, you know, I think many people wish that Hamlet only had one or two acts, that he'd get up and do something <laughs> and, right. the, and the action would move on. As you said, what did you say at the start? It's a very long play. <laughs> Is he going to do anything? But also- But he gets more and more lost. Well, when people are process. depressed, that's one of the most exactly. difficult things. Even to move actually is very difficult. So to take some dramatic action like killing your uncle would must seem, you know, insurmountable. But for those who think it is a very long play and they wish it was shorter and, it, you know, in T20 style, it could be all over. He could just kill someone <laughs> or someone could kill him. We could all move on to the next one. So I think one of the real beauties of the whole thing 
is that the play does go on. It doesn't resolve mm. it in the way we discussed in other modern representations or if, you know, this was simply a, you know, slash and burn drama or it was a Tudor thing that would just, someone would kill someone and move on. It doesn't. It mm. stops. And it holds the audience for a very long time in, in Hamlet's essential dilemma. <laughs> act or not act, be here, be, be a party to it or just take myself out of it and they can all just carry on with this madness. Or And the interesting, you made the reflection, James, do they all think he's a bit queer, he's a bit mad, he's lost the plot. So it becomes about him yeah. rather than his reflection actually accurately on all of them. Well, I think that's one of, one of the things that uh, Shakespeare inherited from the old um, myth of Hamlet, that uh, Hamlet actually in the, in the old story puts on an act of madness to try and uh, throw people off the scent so that whatever he does, they'll feel like it's crazy, they don't, they don't bother about him. So he assumes this act of madness and then comes times during the play when he's one of his heights of passion and dilemma that you think, well, is he crazy or is he still pretending? And that's another, you know, uh, real dilemma for the guy playing Hamlet to work out when he's uh, putting it on and when he's actually tipping over and, uh, you know, his um, passion slave, as he says, and gets, you know, totally carried away. Although that, that does kind of point up a way in which our understanding of mental health has changed. Back then we thought didn't we, that it was kind of binary. You were either sane or you went mad. Like oh, back switch. then? How yeah. many people today still get confronted with, is he exaggerating? Is he really like that? Uh. Couldn't he just pull himself out of it? Couldn't he just take the action? And when you see people who are suffering with their mental state, at times they're okay, at times they're not okay. At times they're fluctuating in how well they are to act. Sometimes they overdo things, they overestimate. They, having done nothing, they suddenly go and do a lot. But also, and, it's a spectrum. It's not like I was mad today, but I'm fine. Tomorrow, you know, yesterday, it's today I'm a seven out of ten. Tomorrow I'm a four out of ten. The day after, I might be a three out of ten. But Next the rest day, of the world, six again. The rest of the world is making up its own explanation for you at the same time. Yes, which includes this: Has he lost the plot? Has he not lost the plot? Is he doing that deliberately or not? Is he just being difficult or not? <laughs> You know, but, but, that's going on all the time. But the, the, the phrase "he went mad," he's insane. We don't use them anymore. They're no. not appropriate anymore, are they? No. We've got new words. Yeah. And I think we have a better- They're a bit uh, more nuanced. Yes. He, he's, yes. He, he has depression. Yeah. So we a develop, severe depression, a mild we, depression. Yeah. We've developed new language. We don't just have a nervous breakdown or not. We've got, uh, we got, we got subtleties now in our language for the various ranges of mental states. Do, does that change from the, the switch version of mental health, sane or un, insane, to the spectrum- marking your mental health out of 10, for example, does that change perhaps the reading of the play in any respect or the interpretation of it? Uh, I think you've got to sort of uh, take into account as the play develops, he becomes more and more impatient with himself and says, why can't I do this? What is, what's the matter with me? And it's really to a point where it becomes decided for him eventually hmm. that uh, he realises that... that um, that uh, he's being plotted against by uh, his uncle and, and Laertes, and they're setting up this uh, this duel, which he knows is probably sort of, uh, you know, a trick. One of the swords is poisoned. He doesn't know that, but he knows there's some kind of villainy afoot. And so he's facing up to death, and uh, and by now he's ready for it. Um, before, you know, he was questioning it. Now he's, he's at that stage where I was sort of uh, almost like Buddhist sort of fatalism about whatever happens, 
is meant to happen. Mm. Uh, he says, um, there's special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man has aught of what he leaves, what is it to leave betimes? Let it be. So by the end of the play, he has come, he's come to a point of reconciliation and acceptance. He's no longer fighting himself. He's, whatever happens, it's going to happen. I'm ready for it. So that could either be enlightenment or deep, deep, deep depression. It's hard to tell. Well, it's loss of agency. You know, he's just going to accept now. Having not acted, the world has moved on. So one of the issues we discuss all the time, James, is one of the problems in the mental health world is loss of agency. The world will continue to move on. <laughs> While you're still stuck in your own head or you're not acting, the world will move on. Now, you end up in a situation, well, I'm just going to have to go with it, which is the outcome <laughs> of not resolving the dilemma. Mm. In, in, for those who listen to this series regularly, you'll know we have this constant discussion. Does action lead to thought or does thought lead to action? And I'm always going, go do stuff <laughs> and you'll think differently. Right. You know, in this kind of situation, if Hamlet had acted differently, different sets of thoughts would arise, including probably reinforcing his own agency to affect the outcome. By the time it gets to this, having done nothing, there's nothing more to be done. He just has to accept what others have done, which, you know, there is that kind of philosophical tradition of just accept the world the way it is. Generally speaking, I'm going with that ain't so great from a mental health point of view. Yeah. <laughs> People are better with a sense of agency. Sometimes the agency is you have to do the act <laughs> to then think about it, but you've retained that. And the loss of sense of agency is very perturbing. Now, he loses it because he's lost in his own head. Yeah. He cannot so he can go people, round and round on the same thoughts without actually an action. As so many people. As so many people with anxiety and depression can be lost in their own world. And like, people are looking at them like, what are you going to do? Because I'm still thinking. <laughs> and, and, and there's also that sense of isolation, like you mentioned before, that his friends are spying on him. His girlfriend's spying on him. He, he doesn't know who he can. He can't, can't trust his mother anymore. So there's, there, there's no one really to – there's no sounding board. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He has one friend, Horatio, who he, he can explain himself to, but he can't fully explain it. All he can say is just, you know, stand there, be ready for me. But he can't, he can't say, this is my problem or this is what, you know. So here's the great thing, John. Do you think in, in terms of the traditions of these – Stuff we would we would sort of say well go talk about it with somebody you know go actually yeah. tell somebody else yeah. not yes. not in a soliloquy not on your own not into thin air go try these ideas out on somebody you trust you know because the interaction with others will help you to get that back in perspective or to consider the range of options and not just to go round and round what do, what do you think the tradition was that gave rise almost to the soliloquy almost to the I mean it's explanatory to the audience but you know uh, do you think the, the, the in a, I think it's what's try change, James, is a willingness to actually go explore this with others, mm. to let some of these thoughts that people have in their head be shared with others so that others can feed back and go, now, hang on a sec, <laughs> let's get this in perspective. Yeah, well, that's the tradition with all the soliloquies that they are meant to be spread directly to the audience. And uh, you'd say one thing to the other characters, then when the other characters leave, you say, now I can tell you, the audience, what I'm really thinking, and this is what I'm going to do, or this is the problem I have. So you use the audience as a sounding board, and the audience knows more than the other characters do. They, you know, they become complicit in the action. Uh, in the case of Hamlet, it's, it's harder for them because Hamlet keeps saying, "I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what to do," uh, and the audience can't help it. So it, it, it very much is. Um, Harold Bloom said uh, that Shakespeare invented the idea of personality. That until Shakespeare, you are 
people and characters in drama were types and your type depended on your star sign or the mixture of the humors in your body and Shakespeare said, no, that, that's rubbish. Um, we're not governed by the stars or by the humours. We write our own scripts, we tell our own story, we decide who and what we're going to be. And uh, Hamlet's the first person actually to do that. He's not predictable. You can't type him. You can't say he's this or he's that. He's, he's outside all those boxes, and that's, that's interesting. So I think, Phil, uh, historically, in terms of the history of people discussing mind, this is a really interesting departure, that there's what I say I am to you. <laughs> And what I say my actions are about, and then, hang on a second, I'm going to tell the audience what's really going on in my head. Mm. <laughs> and this separation between the two, the performative bit, whatever you are. I love that. I think, I hope we're not misrepresenting here, the traditions of kabuki theatre in Japanese. We just take up a posture and a position. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's what you are. And if, oh. as, long, as long as you can do it, you are. You're a warrior or something right. else. You can feel really good about it. But here's the, here's the opposite. Here's the, you know, yeah. that. You know, I can be the Prince of Denmark, but here's what I really think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the big obvious example of the uh, of this little movie is Richard III, who is totally charming and plausible to everybody. Mm. And the audience, when, when the characters leave, he says to the audience, now I'm going to bump him up and I'm going to bump her off and, you know, come with me. And the audience loves it. They're in on the secret, you know, that he's such a gleeful kind of, uh, you know, villain. And the, that's the obvious kind of use of this little movie. Hamlet's is much more complex in that uh, he's, got, he's got no agenda. So I thought what I think is good about the Hamlet one, I mean, the Richard III one is what we all think, we think all villains are. Yeah. And when we assume in the modern world all politicians or whatever, yeah. behind the scenes what they really think is <laughs> clearly not what they're saying because yeah. we can see from their actions. But the beauty, I think, of the Hamlet one is the genuine dilemma in his head. Oh. You know, it is genuine. He isn't really plotting something else. He's really stuck. Yeah. <laughs> He's really stuck with this, I can't make sense of it. I really can't figure it out. But, but those soliloquies, I reckon – when people are in good mental health, they don't have so many soliloquies. They talk to people and they work out their problems and issues that way. But when you're depressed or anxious, that's when people do talk inside their own head and feel isolated and go round and and round. And, you know, it's kind of like a soliloquy without an audience, isn't it? It's almost a sign. Totally. So I think this is one of the most genuine um, creative or, or cultural representations of exactly the sort of thing we talk about all the time. So I think it also hangs around 400 years later because it's so accurate. <laughs> it's such an accurate – which means, of course, that's exactly what people were doing at the time. Shakespeare didn't just pull this from nowhere, <laughs> just being very aware that this is what was going on in people's heads. Yeah. It wasn't widely discussed. It wasn't widely represented. In literature, and you know, it's it's kind of in that sense, really historically, from a, from a mental health perspective, it is a landmark. So well, does, here's suddenly the first time a really accurate representation in a way that ordinary people can access of how people get stuck in their own head. So, John, does towards the end of the play, Hamlet offer any glimmers of hope for how to how to free ourselves or how to treat this sort of round and round depressed, anxious thought pattern? Uh, well, no, it's just what I, I, I quoted a minute ago saying, um, be ready, accept what happens, accept yeah. fate as it, as it occurs to you. So that's his only resolution. He's got no other no advice to offer or any other way out. Just, okay, uh, bring it on. I'm ready for it. So can I ask, John, in picking up partly where James was, in the modern performance of this now, mm. do you then have to do it differently? Because the audience is kind of more familiar. <laughs> like we're used to, like someone would say, we have too much of this now. <laughs> you know, talking out loud to explain yourself. 
you know. Well, it can it can be different every time because of the of the actor will be different every time, and every actor has to draw on his own uh, insecurities or anxieties or his own personality. So there are no there can be no two Hamlets alike. It's not a role you play; it's a character you it's a person you inhabit and you express yourself through the role. So I've seen like dozens of Hamlets, and they're all different. And Which are the good ones? <laughs> Which are the really uh, well? Recently, uh, David Tennant. Uh, up for the uh, BBC was a very interesting one. He was the first one I'd seen. He was actually changed after he saw the ghost. He was he was a different person after that. And you think, well, that's absolutely right. If if you did happen to your if you happen to see the ghost, yeah, uh, your life would not be the same afterwards. Everything is thrown into a whole new perspective. And he's the first person I've seen who's really captured that very strongly. Changed in what way? Uh, um, his actions became explicable because you knew he was a different person now. He was he was working on a different plane to everybody else. He knew something, been somewhere that right. nobody else had been. You could just see it in his in his uh, in his actions. You know, uh, things that seemed uh, trivial or what uh, were explicable by the fact that he was you know working it to a different schedule now. Mm. Does that to make it just easier for the audience though? I I like the fact that it's hard. It, it's hard to reconcile the two things because in one sense you want him to do something. Mm. Oh, for God's sake, would you do something? I mean, I'm going to say as a behavioural therapist here, for God's sake, I wish he'd do something and then he'd think differently. <laughs> yeah, know? but mm. when you see an, an actor in that role, uh, I say they're all different because they bring their own personality to it. So someone like, say, John Gielgud was very uh, sensitive and intellectual. Uh, Richard Burton was like a bubbling volcano, sort of consumed by frustration. Um, so every actor brings his own personality, or even her personality, because a lot of female actors have played Hamlet too. They bring themselves to the role, and, uh, you know, that's why it's always different. What do you think you bought? Uh, what did I bring to it? Well, I've done it twice. Um, the teenage angst the first time. Yes. And the second time, um, uh, bewilderment and frustration that uh, I could relate to very easily at that time when I was about 30. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I think you should play Hamlet every 10 years just to check where you are at in your life's you know, journey because uh, it will reflect wow. what you're going through. Which makes it one of the great attractive – I think that's a really interesting insight. I kind of like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> every 10 years, given what's going on in your life now, <laughs> you know, bewilderment or frustration may drop in. Can't really make sense of things at this life stage. Yeah. I mean, the, the teenage one, I think, is a really good one. I mean, in – well, he is about 18 years old. He's at university, so that, that teenage thing, the, the Oedipal uh, element to his relationship with his mother is still very strong. So I think it makes sense that he's, uh, you know, a late teenager. So for those who are dragged through these things, as I was in high school, you know, year 11, 12, that stuff, HSC, I must say I feel sorry for the ones who didn't have Hamlet, <laughs> you know, who got left with some other one about old people or something else or some other life stage they had no understanding yeah. of. i got to say, running into Hamlet at this age at school, I thought, now that means something. <laughs> right. There's something every, in my case, boy in the class kind of gets, you know, in one when explained, when the language is sort of deconstructed. Yeah. Right. yeah. Oh, that's what it's about. And yeah. this, is, this isn't just representing the world as we know it or just some silly costume drama of some sort or other. There's something much deeper here, which then is, of course, a way of having those conversations. It's a way of actually drawing out that lots of people have this internal world and it isn't easily resolved. No. You know, people want to tell you all the time what to do, yeah. but that doesn't necessarily fix it. <laughs> You've got to somehow 
work your way through it. And, and, and the dilemma here of doing nothing, just going round and round and round, not being able to reconcile yourself with your world, doesn't really work. I have a great friend who says, you know, he's an anarchist, but he couldn't find a way to be in the world. <laughs> so he said, in his head, he still is if anyone asks. But every day, he's an organized sort of guy. Because <laughs> to be lost in it, to just, just to be alienated from stuff, is not, is not really an option. Because otherwise, you've got to drop out. Otherwise, you've got to leave this world. You can't reconcile it just by being alienated. But, but to, do other, to do otherwise is often not simple. Yeah. Well, and compromised. Not. And there are dangers and there are risks and there is stuff. <laughs> and who's a good guide anyway? Who do you trust? You know, like, who do you take with you? The value of friends? Can you trust others? Mm. The lack of sort of transgenerational relationships here. Yes. That's no, one, no one from the, up, the, up, the upstairs who knows more seems to be helping. <laughs> they all got their own. They've, even at their age, they've all still got their own agenda. Well, yeah. If, if Shakespeare was alive today and he'd written it as a film, he would have got enormous pr- pressure from producers before they gave him the money to, to, to have something at the end that showed Hamlet had learned something and grown and, you know, provide that kind of more traditional, satisfying story arc. He might still die, but he's changed and he's learned something and that gives us a little message to take. Yeah. Um, do you think? Well, I think Hamlet, as I say, I think he does change by the end, that he comes to a, a calm sort of acceptance. Yeah. Uh, I can't do anything about it. Uh, these things have happened. Uh all I can do now is accept the fate that is about to befall me. Mm. And, uh, you know, he takes on Laertes. He fights the duel with him. Uh, then kills Hamlet. Kills Laertes. He kills Claudius. So you know, he does carry out his mission. Yes. In the end, um, and it's interesting about the length of the play because Kenneth Branagh made uh, a film of Hamlet, but the full length, the whole mm. three and a half hours or something. Uh, and uh, it was released in the cinemas. It was a big success, but the producer, the cinema chain said, look, it's it's too long. Can you do a shorter version? So he made another version about, you know, regular two hours or something. And audiences didn't want it. They thought they wanted the full thing because, they, you know, they wanted the whole long story. They didn't want to see it truncated or, or, or shortcuts. So they put back on the full-length version again, which that was really interesting mm. in the cinema. What do you think about that then the, in the the sense of acceptance. You know, we, we've talked a lot about depression and anxiety and cognitive behavioural therapy and uh, activity and various ways that we can mitigate their effects. Uh, what about simply the the Hamlet uh, solution of saying, this has happened, I'm, I've got to accept that I'm powerless over some things and just go about things. As well, there is... There is, for all of us and for younger people, coming to terms with the reality of things. One of my great philosophy friends says, life is tough and then you die. Yeah. You know, it's a very hard to argue with. <laughs> and there are compromises to be made in their actions. I, I think when you said um, modern Hollywood films wouldn't do this, they do it all the time. Have you ever seen any of those westerns or anything else, the, sh- the gunfight at the end? People accept at the end there's going to be blood and yeah, gore. Right. Usually the hero's dead. Yep. Some of the American films, the hero still wanders off. But a lot of the times, like Clint Eastwood, sort of unforgiven, somebody's dead. The yeah. thing gets resolved in a similar way. There's an acceptance that there's no easy way out. Mm. The dilemmas that are there are really there. And then humans have to come to terms with that. Mm. Whether they have sorted it in their head or not, the reality of the world is what it is. Yeah. And so the acceptance thing is really important because the not accepting that, the not coming to some sort of resolution. That makes you unhappy. Well... The world does move on. So whether you want to do it or not, it's going to crash into you. <laughs> yeah. So how you come to terms with that psychologically 
cope with that and your role in it is in essence, and I like John's idea of every star, I think I reckon every 10 years, every stage of life has that. Yeah. At what point as a, as a young person, as a parent, as an older person, as a grandparent facing death, the same issue about whether you can resolve that, it's going to happen. What is the best mental state for me to be in? Yeah, just meditation based on that, that you have learned to live in the moment, learn to accept yeah. what's, what's coming. True. Learn to, to accept reality. Isn't that what the meditation? Mindfulness. Mindfulness. Mm. Yes. So all the great meditation, mindfulness stuff has that. It is, it's not about the future. It's not about elaborate plans. It's about living the best you can by focusing on the moment, which you know, runs contrary to the whole sort of Western world we're planning yeah. for generations. You know, we, we miss the point today because we're trying to live tomorrow and the day after that. But you endorse that, don't you, mindfulness? Live for those, the <laughs> as someone pointed out to me this week, Ian, you're not very good at it. But I went, yeah, 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 but a lot of people are. Yeah, so that tradition has a lot going for it. And clearly, clearly, a lot of people have benefited from a mental health point of view about recapturing that. Whatever else happens tomorrow, whether I die tomorrow, whatever happens in the next generation, I've got to live better today. Mm. In, in a mental health sense, that's essential because often people are postponing enjoying something. They're postponing yeah. the resolution because of what might happen a when, day when away. They're, when they're ways. at work, they're thinking about home. When they're at home, they're yeah. So they fail. Work. They fail to live and and derive the pleasure or the satisfaction from the moment. Yeah. So there's a very strong mental health tradition. In that. Yeah. I think the thing is, though, whether people – come back to an earlier comment I made – whether people feel they have agency in that, if they feel they are just simply subject to the will of others, that ain't so good. John, so, so some of the meditation stuff, well, you're just going to have to put up with it. <laughs> it doesn't work so well right. from a mental health point of view. John, any other big themes we should touch on? Revenge, justice, grief, anything else? <laughs> there's a few, I guess. Yeah, there's a, there's a Pick few. one. Well, the one that most interests me is, is the depressive state. Because, yeah. So uh, that's something I, I know about and uh, I am, am going through myself and I identify with that very strongly. The sense of, um, you know, what's the point? Um, why carry on? Um, how to get up in the morning? How to think what to do with myself today? I mean, I'm familiar with that state. So that's the one I gravitate to when I think about Hamlet and what his situation is. And has anything in looking at the play again you know, being useful. I guess it's useful just to think, well, it's not just me, it's that guy too. Shakespeare obviously knew about it. Sure, obviously. I mean, uh, you realise that this is, you know, um, not unusual and not not a mortal sin. It's what you just have to, you know, somehow go through. Yeah. Um, I think that's, you know, it, it teaches you some sort of fellowship, you know, with uh, others who are going through a similar thing. Could I just pick that up? Because John's talking about, that, and you just said, and Shakespeare obviously knew about it. Yes. If you have the chance, go and look at the Royal Society of Medicine and an exhibition they've had this year called The Anatomy of Melancholy okay. and the extent to which people have written about this since the Greeks. Yeah. And it actually got picked up again in the Middle Ages in the UK and in these traditions and got written about again. And I think in the, the Shakespearean bit of Hamlet comes out of that. People writing more deeply and actually men writing about it really interestingly because in the modern world we're trying to get – in a gender sense, often gets associated with women. But actually, men wrote about this a lot, and they picked that up again, and it had been lost for some centuries before that. And I think this, the play and, and, the, and the very accurate descriptions that Shakespeare's got, that it was going on at the time. And in some way or other, I don't know, Shakespeare at a relatively young age, picked that up and very accurately represented it. Well, I just wonder, John, is there any evidence that Shakespeare might have had depression? Depression? Uh, 
Un- unlikely because he was so productive. He yes. had about four plays a year. Yeah. <laughs> and acting in them and directing them and running a theatre company. Uh, I don't think he had time to get depressed. <laughs> and that, maybe that's one of the. He certainly understood mental states. I mean, one of the most difficult characters I played was Leontes, the king of, in uh, The Winter's Tale. Um, he. In the very first scene, he's with his best friend and his wife, and he suddenly has this flash of insane jealousy, and he believes that his friend is ha- having an affair with his wife and that he's got her pregnant. So he immediately starts plotting how to kill his best friend, throws his wife into prison, takes the newborn child and has it uh, taken away to be destroyed. Jeez. Uh, starts um, blaming, you know, uh, condemning all the people to try to try to talk sense into it. And uh, I thought, how the hell? There's no lead up. He just goes straight into yes. flash. Like in, in, the Greeks would have said, it's a it's a visitation from the gods. Um, Middle Ages would have said it's possession by the devil or an evil spirit. But I went to a, a psychiatrist and I said, this is the this this guy has these symptoms. Um, uh, giggling, talking to himself, looking you know, looking up uh, over his shoulder all the time, looking at shadows, uh, suspecting everybody. I said, um, you know, what is this guy's state? said, my God, this guy is a absolutely classic paranoid schizophrenic. Who is he? And I said, he's a character in Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How could Shakespeare have known all that? I said, well, he didn't know uh, the name for it, but he'd observed it and he'd notated it very, very Goodness. accurately. So, you know, so... He certainly, as you say, he understood. Well, great observer. I mean, observer. So I think I think two things. Which, which what the writers are, aren't they? Yes. The observers and recorders. And the unusual bit. So what I was suggesting is, I think some wider social discourse was going on about these things. But Shakespeare's capacity to observe that at a relatively young age, and then very accurately just describe it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, we necessarily say that he was depressed himself or whatever, but certainly his sensitivity about mental states and the way they, the behaviour was observed and commented by others and interpreted by others as distinct from what was going on in the person's head. Yeah. That's quite unique. Yeah. And I think it remains the case in a lot of modern literature, et cetera. A lot of people still don't get that point. John, they write one or the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. John, thank you so much. My great pleasure. Very interesting. Any questions? Again, thank you. Uh, if you've got any questions or comments, uh, if you want to suggest further topics for us, please send us an email at mindingyourmind2, mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. And our podcast is supported by the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Google them. You can call Lifeline on 13113.